Hello, I'm Ian Campbell from Palliative Care Australia. Welcome to Thursdays at 3, conversations with people living and working at the end of life. Whether you're someone who works in palliative care, have a loved one going through palliative care, are living through grief and bereavement in your own life, or whether you're someone who's living with a life-limiting illness, or perhaps you're someone who's just keen to engage more in one of society's big last taboos, death and dying, then I hope there's something for you in this conversation that we're about to have. Welcome. Thanks so much for being here. And today we share the wisdom and the work of Rachel Coglin, a palliative care physiotherapist and researcher. G'day, Rachel. Nice to have your company this afternoon. Thank you. Hello, Ian. Thanks for having me. Through the Centre for Humanitarian Leadership at Deakin University, Rachel is exploring the delivery of palliative care during times of emergency and crisis with a focus on armed conflict war zones and she's just returned from Gaza in the Middle East as part of her work and part of her research. When she's back home in Victoria, Rachel works as a palliative care physiotherapist at Calvary Healthcare in Melbourne and is also a board director here at Palliative Care Australia. Lots to talk about, Rachel, especially your recent trip to Gaza, but let's start at the start. I think when people think about palliative care, they see nurses and doctors not necessarily physiotherapists. How did you come to combine physiotherapy and palliative care? How did it start for you? Good question. Um, because it's not, as you say, it's not something that we always associate with allied health and with physiotherapy. Palliative care certainly, um, back when I trained as a physiotherapist, wasn't something that was part of our undergraduate training. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess... A couple of things. In in some ways, I fell into it. Um, in some ways, I had always had a passion. I think for uh, aged care, for people living with disability, um, for people with life limiting conditions. Um, when I was at university, I um, funded my way through university through working uh, at an aged care facility as a carer and also at. Uh, um, some supported accommodation for people with disabilities. Um, and I graduated from from my Kmart checkout chick job um, to those, and so I think developed a strong passion at that time for working with people um, with disability and with vulnerabilities. Um, but then when I when I set out um, on my physio career, once I had graduated, I was living and working in London, and I found myself. Um, suddenly working with a huge number of people uh, who were living with motor neurone disease. Um, And I guess I developed a strong passion um, for MND. um, And as many people will know, MND, and I think as you you spoke with Professor Samar last week, um, a a progressive neurological condition for which there is no cure um, and people will uh, end up on a palliative care pathway with MND. Um, so I then ended up working for the Motion Neurone Disease Association in London and um, became very passionate about palliative care. Um, and I had a very privileged experience um, when I was uh, sort of trying to further my expertise in palliative care um, generally and as a physio when I was at a a multi-professional uh, day at St Christopher's Hospice in London 
which was right. The, the home of palliative care in many respects. Palliative care, um, Dame Cicely Saunders's um, initiative, and um, where she she worked and where she. Uh, spent her last days and died and I just happened to be at this multi-professional training day for palliative care on the day that Dame Cicely died in the very hospice that I was that I was at so I think that was a, a sign and a calling that um, this was a really important area of work to be in and that what a, what a privilege to be there on that particular day. Palliative care is all about maximizing the quality of life for as long as, as possible. Give us a sense of your work as a physiotherapist in in empowering that quality of of life. How do you help people? How does that that art of physiotherapy help someone with a life-limiting illness? I like that you put it as an art um, because I think it is because I think there's I think and I think that's what draws me most to um, to physiotherapy and palliative care Um, because we obviously have you know, we have a certain evidence base around um, the support of, of physical symptoms and pain, um, whether that's, you know, um, helping somebody uh, with their movement and their mobility, their physical um, mobility, or supporting somebody who may um, be very short of breath or have severe breathlessness or dyspnea, um, whether it's, uh, you know, alleviating pain through things like massage um, and movement and maintaining range of motion of of joints and muscles. That's the physical stuff. Um, But I think for me um, the most important role that I play as a palliative care physio is is helping somebody to maintain independence as long as possible um, to to ensure that they are maximising their quality of life um, till the end. Um, But that everything that we do and plan around palliative care physio is related to that person's particular goals, mm-hmm. no matter how small um, those goals might be. So when I work, so particularly when I'm working in the hospice setting and working with people who may be coming fairly close to the end of life, one of the things that um, I will always chat to a patient about is and their family is whether they would like to go outside and get some fresh air and you so often find that people may have spent many weeks potentially months in an acute hospital setting mm-hmm. may have to palliative care um, and may not have had fresh air for a very very long time um, and just helping somebody whether it's helping them into a wheelchair or helping them to walk outside in whatever way or form that takes um, can just do so much for a person's um, spiritual health and psychological health. Um, so for me, that's that's really the crux of what we do. It's goal centred. Um, it's focusing on on uh, you know w- what are even the small things that we can be providing mm-hmm. for somebody to to help them with their quality of life. You must have had some amazing experiences and met some great people along the way in, in, in providing this service to people. Do you mind sharing some of those experiences that you've you've had along the way that sort of highlight the power of your your work yeah so many stories and I think every story um is in many ways humbling and a a privilege um I guess one that springs to mind immediately is an experience I had on our palliative care ward um where I walked into a patient's room as the physio 
and um, came across my high school principal um, who I hadn't seen for 20-plus years. Uh, in fact, the last time I would have seen her was my last day of Year 12 and um, yeah. it happened to be her last day at, at our high school after 10 years. Um, and it was a, a beautiful moment of being able to give something back to somebody who had taught me so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had a wonderful chat and some wonderful banter about all the naughty things that we had done in our time at high school. <laughs> and all the times she had told us off um, and all the beautiful moments we had experienced and we did had these conversations while I was introducing her to this new concept for her of a four-wheel walking frame yeah. um, to help her be able to walk outside for the last time. Mm-hmm. Um, but what was most, uh, um, yeah, I suppose what I what I got most out of that um, was was not the walking frame, but it was the conversation and just this this really beautiful experience um, of of encountering this person that had once been such a massive part of my life. What do you take from those sort of experiences into your own life about about life and death and and living? How has your work shaped? your approach to your own life, to your family's life? Well, that's a big question, eh? <laughs> I, I just thought that, that's a really unfair question, Rachel. Yeah. Um, oh, I think it makes you grateful for every moment. Um, I think it has all of these experiences have helped me to perhaps slow down uh, and to... Um, leave space for quiet times and space for conversation um and uh i guess i guess one of the big things that that my palliative experience palliative care like the practical experiences have done for me is understand the power of story and the power of narrative um and i have certainly brought that a lot into my home life and into yeah, I don't know, just just how, how it shaped everything that I do really. I've started writing a lot since I became, um, since I got yeah. more involved in palliative care. Um, yeah, it's a long-winded answer. <laughs> not at all, not at all. It's something, to, something for us all to keep thinking about. Um, your work as a physiotherapist, I guess, highlights that, that team approach to palliative care. I, I mentioned the doctors and nurses and their critical parts of, of our approach and, and delivery of palliative care. Physiotherapists and other allied health professionals are, are also part of that, that team approach, that holistic approach to, to palliative care. Can you give us a sense of perhaps some of the other people, some of the other allied health professionals who might be involved in someone's palliative care experience? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, we work with um, certainly in my work in Melbourne and, and a setting like Gaza is, is very different and I can um, talk to that in a moment, but... Um, I guess we work with a, a huge range of um, allied health professionals. From um, we work very closely with occupational therapists, um, dietitians, speech therapists, um, music therapists, pet therapists. Um, I guess there's a, there's a, a huge, a huge multidisciplinary team um, in terms of allied health uh, that plays a really important role in in supporting somebody to maximise their quality of life. 
Um, I'd also add to that, though, the the people that we don't often think about um, but are still not necessarily part of the, the professional allied health team but are still so much a part of um, the team and a part of, of supporting um, a person living with a life-limiting illness, um, like the cleaners on the hospital ward or the chefs or the cooks in the kitchen or the volunteers that come and deliver morning tea, the people that have these constant interactions with patients and family members um, and just play such an important part um, of, of the role, I think certainly in a, in a clinical setting. Yeah. Um, but then equally at home, all of the, um, you know, the, the social support systems and networks that people have around them, um, I think we always have to remember a part of a palliative care team as well. Mm. All those little bits and pieces that go together to, to make a life and, and build a quality of, of life. We've all got a role to, role to play. And I guess yeah. would I be right in saying that I guess the people that are needed in that team are certainly inspired by the the needs of the, the patient and the, and the family? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we, I mean, we work closely as a team and and have um you know we're very good at in palliative care i think very good at having multidisciplinary team meetings um but we would always make sure that we're involving the patient and and the family um in those meetings and in those discussions to make sure that all that we do is um is very much centered around that that person and their family's goals um, and wants and wishes for for their time remaining Mm -hmm. um you know, I think we and we often have to we have to balance what what we may advise or have been taught from a professional perspective with what that patient and their family really want. Um, yeah. I guess a little uh, you know a little example of that is a a, a, a person um, living with cancer who I um, encountered not that long ago who had very uh, she had trouble walking um, and had um, quite poor balance, but her number one goal was to be able to get back to her little um, plot of land um, and tend to her garden. Um, so I think, you know, if we purely looked at that from a clinic, looked at that from a pl- clinical perspective, we might say, well, actually, that's you don't have the balance to do that anymore. You'll just fall over. Um, yep. But it's about finding ways that we can we can make that happen. And if that's working mm-hmm. with the allied, other allied health professionals to enable that to happen, then um, that's what I think our, our core business is. Mm. Let's move on to your, your research work. Where did you combine the idea of palliative care and war zones? How did, how did that come to connect for you? Um, you've just been to Gaza, I guess, studying the delivery of palliative care in a in a war zone, in a conflict zone. How did that first thought come together for you? So a convoluted pathway, I think, but um, <laughs> if I was to try and pinpoint a moment, and it has been a, a you know, a, a kind of a long trajectory over a couple of decades really of, of coming to coming to this research now, but um, if I could pinpoint a moment, it was when I was actually working for the Motor Neurone Disease Association in London mm-hmm. and I was a, wasn't working as a physio, I was a, a care advisor and we have a similar model here in Australia, support 
coordinators, care advisor role, um, whose job it is to, you know, to look after that person and their family and signpost them to different health and social care services. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was referred a man who uh, was uh, from South Sudan um, that was at the time experiencing war, as it is still now, um, and he was living in London by himself um, and he was there illegally. So he didn't have a visa to be there and he was sending, he was working as a taxi driver, um, getting cash in hand to send remittances home to his family. Mm-hmm. Um, he uh, was diagnosed with motor neurone disease and he faced this very difficult decision um, of whether he would stay in London um, for the period of his illness <clears throat> until his death um, without any family support. His family couldn't come to him. They didn't have visas to come to the UK. Um, and he would have had very basic health services and um, some some social services, but, but limited given his um, visa status. Or he could go home um, and receive very limited health care mm-hmm. um, home in his war-torn country. So this, this, we helped to support him and he, um, he came to the decision that what was most important for him was to go home and be with his family, knowing that he wouldn't have that health and social care support, uh, health, the health support around him, but yeah. he would have his family and social care. And I think for me that, um, that, that sparked uh, a passion for humanitarian work um, and... Here I am combining the two. I think that's yeah, the, probably the the point that set me on a path, even though the path uh, was has come about a, a bit of a long winded way. <laughs> what have you learned so far? I mean, the delivery of any sort of healthcare in that sort of setting is a is a challenge, um, let alone trying to give a quality of life to people at the end of their life in in that sort of setting. What have you learned so far from from your research? Like um, another big question. Sorry, Rachel. Thousand word thesis, if you. Know. <laughs> um, so yeah, if I could pick out a couple of key things, um, I I guess when I when I embarked on my um, PhD, looking at palliative care in conflict settings. I had to come up with a research question, as we all do in a in a big um, PhD or piece of research, um, and I deliberately kept that research question very broad um, because what I had found in sort of preliminary discussions with experts in palliative care and experts in humanitarianism, and very often you don't find experts in both, um, was that opinions differed so much on what would be most important in, in for palliative care in a humanitarian setting mm-hmm. and that people would come with their own biases, their own preconceived ideas, their own expertise, their own clinical expertise on what palliative care should look like in such a setting. So I embarked on this research in Gaza with a very broad question to try and understand and learn from them rather than saying, how do we implement palliative care in your setting? Yeah, right. Much more, what does care of the seriously ill and dying look like in this context already? Mm -hmm. 
what are current ideas around suffering in illness, death and dying, how they currently support those who are seriously ill and dying, um, and how do they think, think the future of palliative care might look um, in this particular context. And then, only then can we try and understand, well, how, how might we um, try and support that? Mm-hmm. Um, how have you seen the, the residents and the, the communities of Gaza respond to that, their friends and family, at the end of their life? How have you seen, what have you learned from the people of Gaza around their approach to, to palliative care and, and supporting their, their loved ones? Yeah. So I think that's that's the thing with with this work. I've learned so much more than I than the you know sort of the the information that I could have that I could impart to them. Um, I suppose the the key things for me are that in a context like Gaza, and I think you you touched on this with Professor Samar last week um, when she was talking about uh, her context of Lebanon. Yeah. Um, in a context like Gaza. Um, there are so many valuable um, assets and aspects of palliative care that already exist, even if they don't call it palliative care. Yeah. Um, and as, as Professor Samar had said, a lot of that is around um, this idea that compassionate communities already exist. Um, yeah. They're collective cultures. They, it, family and community will do the bulk, bulk of, of caring in serious illness and dying. Um, and that's something that really, if we're talking about improving palliative care services in a context like Gaza, we need to be supporting that um, and mm-hmm. highlighting that and not detracting from that. Um, that. And, you know, I mean, that's not to say that all of these other things like making sure that um, pain relief and morphine is available and all of the important advocacy that goes around yeah. um, pain relief availability, um, I think we need Sometimes we often go in with a kind of deficits approach and think what does not exist um, rather than saying, well, actually there are some really beautiful aspects of caring that do exist um, and how can we harness that um, to, to a level where everybody is um, is well supported in their illness and in their death. Um, and I think when I, when I spoke to a huge number of healthcare professionals in Gaza um, and they were both... Um, Gazan and expatriate humanitarian workers, um, overwhelmingly uh, there was a response that whilst we don't call it palliative care, a lot of what we do could be considered components of palliative care, Mm -hmm. Um, that people are not abandoned, that compassionate care exists, um, that multidisciplinary care exists. They do have allied health workers um, who will rally around and support a person alongside their family. Um, and so I think, yeah, we just always need to be mindful of different cultures and contexts have different ways of um, of caring for their own. Yep. Uh, and we don't, we, we in the Western world, in our biomedical um, concepts and models of palliative care, um, have have a lot that we can learn as well as, as um, things that we can offer. The, the power of strong communities just shines through again and, and the, the strength that that brings to to individuals but also to us as a society just just shines out again from your experience in, in Gaza like mm. um, Gaza has has dominated our, our news for so long for many decades what was it like being there 
it is at once heartbreaking and uplifting and it's very mm-hmm. hard it's very hard to describe that succinctly <laughs> um uh, the the Palestinian um Palestinian people have a, a concept called peso optimism um which was first uh, coined by uh, a Palestinian um, author and, and playwright, who Emil Habibi, who, who spoke about this idea of peso-optimism, that they constantly live in this tussle of being pessimistic because of the situation in which they find themselves in war, uh, under mm-hmm. occupation, under blockade, um, with, with very few rights and, and freedoms um, and few health rights. Um, but at the same time, they are extraordinarily optimistic um, that things will get better and there will be a hope for a better future. And so when you're there, that, that concept of peso-optimism is, is just palatable. Um, yeah. You know, you, in many ways you see, you see very clearly those injustices um, and the, the impacts that acute waves of conflict and war have on people uh, and the the extent to which, um, you know, that erodes people's resilience over time um, because it's in, it's ongoing and it, it has, seemingly has no end. At the same time, people are hospitable, beautiful, welcoming, and they live on this little slice of the Mediterranean Sea that is absolutely stunning and has the most gorgeous sunsets <laughs> and they have really beautiful food and are very willing to share their amazing food. Um, so, and I think... That concept of peso-optimism comes up um, really clearly when you talk to them about illness, death and dying, Um, that on the one hand death is pervasive and therefore um, an accepted thing because it is part of their everyday lives. Um, Everybody will have experienced death, whether that's death from cancer or death from warfare and trauma. Um, but at the same time, there's this strong um, desire to fight, to fight against that, um, to fight yep. against, to keep fighting, because um, mm-hmm. that's what you have to do for to survive. So it's a, it's, a, it's complex, um, but beautiful. So lovely to get a sense of the the people and the place beyond the bad news that we always hear from from Gaza and the and the Middle East. Thank you for for taking us there just just for a little moment. What's the what's the takeout for Australia as a another big question, Rachel? Brace yourself. What's the takeout for Australia? I guess as a as a society, as a community, but also as a as a for the palliative care sector. What's the relevance in your in your research, in your experience for the Australian context? So I, th- I think um, I think that there are things that there's, there's a lot that we can learn from other communities and, and cultures around the world who deal with adversities that, that we can only imagine and that we only hear on the news. I think we got our own little, have had our own little taste of that in the context of, of the pandemic in, um, in trying to deal with new adversity that we had never faced as a community before, whether that was dealing with lockdowns, with personal protective equipment, with visitor restrictions, not being able to have your whole family around in a hospital setting as somebody was dying. So we in the palliative care world have had to have had to grapple with that. Um, and 
have had to grapple with this idea that you you can't always do everything you were trained to do, um, that it can't always be perfect. So I think having a sense of of humility um, in that and understanding that um, we can we can always strive to do better and and learn um, from others in in contexts of disaster, but also um, knowing that. In, in those contexts, we, we do the best that we can um, and mm-hmm. sometimes we have, to, we have to take part in that. Yeah. Um, I, think, I think also we have a lot that we could learn in terms of emergency preparedness planning um, that we perhaps haven't been so good at in the past um, in healthcare or in the palliative care sector because we haven't had to face it to a huge extent before. Um, so I think now that we're in a hopefully in a bit of a pandemic lull, um, we've got a real opportunity, I think, to be sitting down with our health um, and social sector colleagues and saying, how do do we plan for the next pandemic? And I think that's what humanitarian organisations working in contexts of disaster or war are really good at doing. So how how do we as a sector um, plan better for the next disaster, the next pandemic? Um, I think also... We, you know, we have people in our in our communities who have come from contexts like Gaza, mm-hmm. um, war zones, who come from different cultural backgrounds. There's a lot that we could learn from them, um, and I think, and even even learning from our own indigenous communities on caring for um, people who are seriously ill or dying. It may be different to the way that we conceive palliative care in our Western biomedical frame. Mm-hmm. So how do we how do we really embrace cultural diversity and understand the implications that that has for palliative care without just paying lip service to it, which I think we sometimes do. Yeah. Thanks so much, Rachel. And just finally, your research and your travels aren't over yet in. 2022, you were awarded a Fulbright scholarship. You're off to America shortly for for further study. Give us a postcard from your your travels there. What's the plan? Yeah, very exciting and very um, very privileged to have received uh, a Fulbright scholarship in uh, it's in not for profit leadership um, that has been funded by Fulbright and the Australian Scholarships Foundation and Perpetual. Um, so I am off to Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore um, where they have uh, within their Bloomberg School of Public Health a, a, a specialist centre, um, the Centre for Humanitarian Health. Um, so I'm off to hopefully learn from some amazing people um, about who are, who are experts in refugee and humanitarian health. Um, and hopefully impart a little bit of my experiences um, and research with respect to palliative care, um, which is something that many humanitarian, formal humanitarian organisations around the world have not necessarily thought uh, a huge amount about. Um, So hopefully be doing some good advocacy while I'm there um, with the team and uh, thinking about future research opportunities, um, I think particularly in, in conflict and disaster settings. So very exciting. Excellent. It's only about seven weeks away. 
Thanks so much, Rachel. Um, really appreciate your time. Great to have you at work, not only in our world, but within the Australian palliative care sector and the, the health sector more broadly. Great to have you at work sharing your wisdom and sharing your, your experiences with us. And you're not quite back at work yet. You're only just back from holidays. You've got that beach brain uh, that we can all relate to at summer and trying to get back into the groove of work. So really appreciate you trying to, um, or really appreciate you sharing some time with us today when you've got that that beach brain happening and you're not quite back at work yet. You've done, done beautifully. Thank you so much. I hope, hope I managed to make sense and haven't left my brain in Bermagui. <laughs> Thanks so much, Ian. Thank you. Thanks, Rachel. And whether you're a listener or a watcher at Thursdays at 3, thank you so much for tuning in and, and taking an interest. You'll find more information and tools to support your thinking and your own conversations about living well and the end of life on the Palliative Care Australia website. Thanks again. We'll see you next Thursday at 3.